My name is Arlene. I was told to say that again. Okay, so I just start now? Okay, so yeah, Arlene Compulsive Overeater. I've been in the program for 29 years, and I only know that because someone else I know has been in 28 years, and I've been longer than her. That, you know, I really am, you know, a lot of my story is that I'm just a vague person, you know. I don't know how I got to this program. I don't know who turned me on to it. I think the stork dropped me off here. But um, I I think the first meeting I went to was at Beverly Hills High School. I was, anyway, I, I was blown away. And I used to, for many years, I would just watch like I was at a play. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, what I was seeing. I had no idea. So, you know, I grew up in New York to um, two parents who were compulsive overeaters who had grown up during the Depression. And my mother's parents were immigrants. Both of my parents, my grandparents were all immigrants. But my mother's parents were dirt poor and never learned to speak one word of English. And my mother was over it. You know, she was really having a hard time. Her older brother was much older and he had moved away and, you know, they had zero and she was their voice. You know, I think so much now about immigration, you know, she was their voice and she really had a hard time. My dad's parents were um, deaf mutes, but I don't, you know, like not from birth, but that was the situation. So there was not a lot of talking with my dad. But all of the the parents and the siblings were all compulsive overeaters. There was a lot of, there was lack on my mother's side, just tremendous, you know, not your usual Jewish mother who pushed food. Uh, She was a compulsive overeater and she controlled the food, like in a serious way for the whole family. And plus, she was in a lot of fear that there wasn't enough, that there wasn't going to be enough. And I really have that, you know, still to this day. And it's been very challenging. So she would prepare food and it was just sort of just enough for the meal. And then dad got to have seconds. She would put on your plate what your portion was. You know, when I was thinking about this, I mean, it wasn't like a lot of people have nothing, you know, but I was freaked out that I couldn't have what I wanted. And I know as a baby also, and a lot of us, you know, they didn't feed on demand. They, she just would let me cry when it was, you know, wasn't time to eat. So I think that's how it was done back then. And I just felt like, oh, there was just not enough. There just wasn't, and there wasn't the love either. So it wasn't like food was love. They're just, my mother just, I just feel that she wasn't ready to have a child. She wanted to be just with my dad for a while. And when I came along, I was, you know, dad's little girl. And, you know, he just adored me until I started to become myself. (laughs) Then nobody liked me. (laughs) And it was unbelievably challenging. It was, you know, in the 60s. And I always felt like I, you know, was very earthbound. But I was definitely the push the envelope girl, 
always was, still am. I try really hard to keep my mouth shut. It's, you know. So back then, I would just argue with my parents, with my dad especially. I mean, I, I really dislike my mother, but my dad. So I always thought, like, what came first here? Like, my mother not loving me or me not loving my mother? Whatever it was, I couldn't love her. I just was repelled by my mother. And my dad, you know, like he turned away at certain point as well. So um, I, you know, got this best friend who I feel like was the first person who ever loved me unconditionally. And her family, you know, as nuts as they were, there was abundance. And everyone, all, everyone came to their house to eat. The refrigerator was overflowing with food. And I was like, wow, you know. And also, in my home, I started to, you know, steal. I think it says in the big book about from my mother's slender purse. You know, I started taking, you know, not a lot of money, but I would take money. And I would go with this best friend down to the, um, we called it the avenue. It was like you know, the main street where there were shops. And I would, um, you know, we would go from place to place to place to place and buy this, pickles in the pickle barrel, this in the this place, this in the that. I won't mention it. There were like four pizza places within two blocks where I lived. And um, she was thin, you know, and I was, I never felt thin. I never felt okay. I always felt extremely awkward. My mother was awkward. She didn't teach me how to be feminine or how to, you know, put on makeup and all of this stuff. And she, every time she looked in the mirror, this is what I heard every day. Ugh, I'm disgusted with myself. And I was like, okay. It was just this subliminal message, this thing that I heard. I didn't really get it, you know, but... It took hold on me, and I was, and also, you know, I want to really get out of this part because it's like a lot of blaming, but there was like, no was the answer to everything. They were in so much fear. I couldn't sleep over. I couldn't, they wouldn't let me grow up. I couldn't wear makeup. I couldn't wear heels. I couldn't, you know, and everyone else around me was wearing, you know, they were into the tight black skirts and the teased hair and the dyeing the hair or whatever and makeup. My parent, I would be like, I look like the top of a birthday cake, I felt. You know, they just wouldn't let me live and express myself. So I rebelled. You know, I could say big time. I guess I rebelled big time, but um, I didn't really go crazy, you know. But I did what I wanted to do. And I lied. I just simply lied to them because, you know, or else I couldn't breathe. So, you know, I did always feel awkward and felt like I just couldn't get out of myself, you know. And then, um, so, you know, life went on. My best friend, who was just my doll, my soul sister in her 20s, well, we went away to Israel for eight months together. And she had already been diagnosed with um, Hodgkin's disease. And I was given the burden of, she has Hodgkin's disease, but she doesn't know and don't tell her. 
And that was the big thing. Like, I was 18, 19. My parents <laughs> were so not there for me. They were just like, you know, they just couldn't deal with anything. And I felt like, oh, my God, I had to deal with this. And when we were away, I mean, she didn't know. She knew she had to see this special doctor. And, you know, anyway, it ended up where she saw her records, my friend. And then I had to tell, I told her, I said, okay, let's go to lunch. And I told her. And then people were all mad at me. Her family was mad at me. You, we told you, not, you know, crazy shit. But I was so freaked out and I thought I was wrong. I just felt a lot of shame. I just wasn't having anyone just accept me, accept this girl. And then anyway, it's the reason I moved to L.A. eventually. I couldn't take it. She was living her life, going to college, you know, with this disease. My doctor said, she, you know, I've known people to live up to six years with this disease. And I freaked. And I ended up moving to L.A. And um, I felt 20 years, I felt guilty and I missed her. And I, I just grieved over that for 20 years. I don't recommend it. <laughs> and, um, you know, then I had another loss and life was really crazy. And I was just looking for love and I was hooking up with people t to be my dad, basically. I mean, it was just I was terrified to be out here by myself. I really wanted to go home, but I felt like I couldn't. And so I had this ego, you know, I just couldn't. I couldn't admit defeat. <laughs> You know, I just couldn't do that with anybody. And, um, you know, and then she passed away while I was here. So that was like crazy. I guess I just said that already. So um, then I fell into um, a, a line of work that I hadn't gone to school for. I didn't go to college. I went to a little bit of community college, and I always feel a lot of shame about that. There's a lot of shame. And so I got this job that just fell into my lap, and uh, I was really good at it. And, it. and I was like, I didn't study to do this, but I'm, I just was really good at it. And it was in the entertainment business, and I became a director and... Not a film director, but a director of the department. I used to, anyway, um, I wasn't ready. No one told me how to do it. And I wasn't that good at it. I was kind of bossy, and I am bossy. You know, there's, uh, in the big book, it talks about big shotism a lot. And every time I read that, I just think, that is so me. You know, like, my, when I was little, <laughs> I was babysitting my brother, who's three and a half years younger, he wrote a note to my parents, which they saved, and it said, Arlene was acting like a big shot, so I hit her, and she started up. <laughs> and I'm just like, I totally know I was acting like a big shot, you know? It's like, I get it why someone would want to hit me. <laughs> and it sort of continued, you know, I'm still trying to deal with the mouth, you know? And, uh, but I'm willing today to shut it and to be told and to be teachable. So then, so I was working at that job and food was abundant. It wasn't like the, what do you call it, table, craft services. It was like 
food, tons of food, abundance. They didn't want us to ever leave the workplace. They just brought food, good food, you know, lobster and whatever we wanted. It was in the 80s. It was like free flowing drugs, food, whatever, whatever you want. And I realized, you know, I am an addict and I um, really got into doing drugs, doing cocaine. I was a pothead for many, many years, too. And, and my brother once said to me, like, and I said, oh, I could stop any time. He said, well, then why don't you? And I said, okay, I, I will, you know, because that was love to me. He loved me enough to even say that to me. And I was able, thank God, able to stop without a program. But the food, and then smoking too, you know, that kicked my butt. And I thought I will never be able to stop smoking. I just couldn't. And I was very immature. I mean, I would, I quit with all these people at work. We were like, we're not going to smoke. And one by one, every person fell off except me. And I didn't feel good about it. I was like, I want to smoke. How come you get to smoke and I don't get to smoke? And it's like such childish behavior. And then the only time when I did quit was when I was pregnant, when I was going to get pregnant. So it's like I did it for someone else. And that's been sort of a pattern of not, not being able to have this self-love, but to just love others and do it for them. I did it for the baby, you know. And I'm very grateful. I mean, I, and I know that I could never, ever, ever pick up a cigarette. And I will tell everybody, if you, if you ever, you know, don't touch it. If someone says, my hair is on fire, hold this. Don't. Just do not touch it. And that's how strong it was with cigarettes. And then also I felt like I had the experience of, you know, gambling. You know, I realized, oh, God, I can't ever do this because I couldn't get up from the table. I mean, it's not like I went a lot or anything, but when I went for fun, I couldn't get up from the table. My boyfriend's band was playing. They said, go amuse yourselves for a while and we'll set up a table for you. I never went back. So I'm like, wow, I've got all this stuff. And there are days that I feel like whatever you put in front of me, I would do. And I need to just abstain. I need to stay away. I'm so grateful that um, people in my life don't do these things. It's not around me. But I don't know what would happen. And uh, so that was where I hit my bottom was at that job. Uh, the food, it was just crazy because I never saw abundance like that. And I would just take stuff home. You know, there were loaves and loaves and loaves and loaves of things. And I would be like, oh, my God, I just never saw that. And uh, I thought, wow, this is bad. And I tried these other programs. You know, we had Weight Watchers at work. We had I'd done the other things. One thing where I had to weigh in every single day. And, you know, I just felt like, oh, yeah, I need a cop. I need a cop. That's exactly what I need. But, you know, none of this ever lasted. And I couldn't keep doing that. And I couldn't, I, you know, I was restricted my whole life. And so I just couldn't. My mother would bring home, like, one pastry, and she would cut it in four for the family at her discretion. 
And I finally realized, I said, I bet she ate three. And then this was the one that was left over <laughs> once I realized what was happening. And the other thing is, I just have to say, when I was like 16, in the middle of the hormones and the whole, my life was, they moved my grandmother, who didn't speak English, couldn't hear, into my bedroom. And all my life, I wanted you, like now, I want you to go, oh, that's terrible, you know. And like lots of people live in a room with their grandmother and seven of siblings and this and that. But to me, it was very horrible, beyond. And uh, I thought, you know, you guys could have found a better solution than that. But they would never try to have a better solution. It was just, this is what it's going to be. So um, I tortured my grandmother. <laughs> I was really mean. I mean, not tortured her, but I would do whatever she hated. I would do that because, you know, I just tried to get back at her. And, um, okay, that I really derailed myself there. <laughs> um, so anyway, somehow I got to program. And um, so out of that job. And I, I had a really hard time sharing. I was so nervous today. I mean, not today, but all week. Not nervous today. But I just thought, I never like to share. I don't like to share for three minutes, let alone, you know, this. Because I just feel like, you know, I'm not good enough. I feel shame. I'm not skinny. I've lost 45 pounds in this program, but and I've kept it off and I don't go up and down, up and down, but I don't go down. And I don't definitely I know it's a joke, but I have, you know, a couple of autoimmune diseases and I have thyroid issue. And if I don't really exercise and up my metabolism, forget it. I just don't lose the weight no matter what I do. And I'm just not willing. So there you go. And so when I got in this program, I had an amazing sponsor, very loving, very spiritual. And I was a person who couldn't go along with spirituality before. Like that best friend of mine and I, we visited California and we went to this TM workshop. And they say, after the workshop, they there was an open, you know, I don't know what it's called, orientation. And they said, okay, those of you who are interested, come here. And those who are not, thanks for coming. Well, I went this way and she went that way. And then she, they gave her a mantra and I said, okay, what was it? I can't tell you. So that was like the first, like, what? And I just couldn't get it. It was all about me, all about me, all about me. And what am I going to get? And I need, you know, I would take a hostage. It's like she was a hostage in a way for me as a friend, someone who loved me. I just needed her. And um, I needed my boyfriend and I needed, I just needed it so badly. So here um, in L.A., I would just be with really serious lunatics, you know. I'm losing my train. Is that five five years? <laughs> okay. So, um, all right. So, I had that wonderful spiritual sponsor, and he was just so gentle. He was a gentle man. And I always felt more connected to men than to women. 
men you know I grew up with men they were my friends I was the, the friend and um, he was just a special guy and I he got me on you know the program of having a daily routine of praying and meditating and all of this and it was great working the steps until I said you know what I need someone to kick my ass I need a tough sponsor and there it started you know I went to this sponsor to be tough this one to be sweet this one because I needed both of those things I didn't really need anyone to be tough I had already had tough in my life and you know it just was sort of familiar but it didn't feel good and um so it just went on like that and I slowly started to be of service here I didn't do it for a long time but like I said I would watch like I was going to a play I didn't become really close because I have intimacy issues which I didn't realize that's what it was but I didn't really want to become close to any of you I like I have my friends thank you very much you know I have my life and it's like you know this is the life right here now I'm like gosh I I want my OA group I want to have this and it, and it's difficult you know <clears throat> I uh, so I had a sponsor lately you know for nine years and I kept thinking I need a different sponsor I need a different sponsor I needed and I'm like it's not about your sponsor it's about what are you willing to do it's about me and my higher power it's not about the sponsor the sponsor is this a guide and then I thought you know what I'm going to take on a second sponsor I could do that I could do that and I took on a second sponsor and then organically things sort of fell away with that other sponsor now I have a different one who's very loving very smart very kind and has a spiritual program has what I want you know and that is a connection to God because I think that's the whole thing the in the bottom line you know and um, I also don't have a food plan where I every time I restrict I you know for every diet there's an equal and opposite binge type of thing <laughs> and every time I really restrict for a long time and I thought all of you were doing it perfectly even when I was in the perfect program and I went into how everyone was doing it perfectly I was so upset when I found out nobody was doing it maybe a couple of people you know and I was so upset because I beat myself up so much and um, so I just want in 1992 a sponsor a lovely sponsor gave me this um, beautiful thing in calligraphy a lot of times I'll bring it with me but to me it's sort of the crux of the program and it's from the OA literature which I know is controversial but step three and it's page 24 in the OA 12 and 12 and it says we will no longer simply do what we feel like doing or what we think we can get away with hello instead we will earnestly seek to learn God's will for us then we will act accordingly we give up fear and indecision knowing that knowing that if we give up fear and indecision knowing that our higher power will give us the knowledge of our best course in life 
along with the willingness and ability to follow that course, even when it seems difficult and uncomfortable. And it's like, wow. I go back to that all the time. It says, instead, this is what we'll do. Instead of doing, we will know, I always say this to myself, we will no longer simply do what we feel like doing. And it's not just in the food. It's across the board. You know, it's like, I feel like behaving this way. I feel like saying this. And, you know, the, I, I have a son, so he's going to be 27. I met his dad in this program. Don't try to guess who he is because... Probably you don't know him. <laughs> but um, anyway, I wanted to have a child. And someone said, oh, I'd be willing to do that. I'm like, I wasn't asking for volunteers. <laughs> and then after a while, it was like my time's up. After a while, I said yes. Anyway, it's been really challenging with my son because single mother, he's like enough with the mothering. And the other day, I, I'm having a better relationship because I'm shutting my mouth. Thanks for letting me share. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Are there any questions? Yes. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Um, would you talk about where you are today with forgiveness, self-love, amend process, yeah. Would I please talk about where I am today with uh, forgiveness, self-love, and amends process? Yes, thanks for asking that question because I thought about that. I, I am really, really, really working on self-love for one thing. And so many of the things that I do are acts of self-love that I just never was able to get before. I was always, you know, like in How It Works, it says, what an order, I can't go through with it. And I see it's like, what, an order? (laughs) And so, you know, it's just really been challenging, but it's really great right now, I feel like. I'm starting to have self-acceptance in a big way. I made amends, you know, I've worked through the steps a bunch of times in different ways and in workshops with different people, and um, I have forgiven. I really have. I, I had the opportunity to make amends to my mother. When she was dying, I just thought, I don't even know if, if I can touch her, if I can, what she'll let me do, what I can do. And when I went, it was just, I had already made amends to her, and it had all melted away. And also, the two big things, is like, I have to hold on to this. My mother said to me, my money's on you. That's like the biggest, you know, belief thing that she had, which is great. And also, when she was sick, she said, you know, I was very um, mean to you when you were little. It was, she said, and you didn't deserve it. You were such a good girl. And those words, good girl, but that was such a gift to me, beyond. And I know it was worse than what she said, but I'll take that. And, you know, I did make amends to her, which was very hard to do. 
um, but so grateful I did. And I made amends to my dad, living amends to my dad. We, you know, once my mother passed, we became, I was sweetie again. So it just like life is really something. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So how about the amends to my grandmother? Well, I, I guess, again, it's living amends. I never got to make amends to her. She died way before I was in program. And um, I am extremely kind to elderly people, to my neighbors. I do all kinds of things for them that, you know, I, I take them places. I'm kind to people in the street who are elderly. I just really have tremendous compassion. And like my brother once said to me, speaking of my grandmother, like, who knows what happened to her? You know, maybe she was raped by Cossacks. And also, you know, it's not funny, but she lost kids. She had reasons, you know, for, and, but she was very, very bitter always and old always. <laughs> but, you know, I get it now. It's not easy to be old. Not easy being green. Yeah. Thanks, um, how did you go from anti-spiritual to defining and having a relationship with God? Okay, I would say, oh, how did I go from anti-spiritual to defining a relationship with my God? So I do choose to call God, God. And even though I know that it's a mystery, and I just accept that. But I just know that it's not me, you know. But I would say, you know, probably I was always a spiritual person. It just wasn't in the ways that it was being presented to me. I was much, I was very self-reliant though, but I had a connection with something greater than myself. I was never angry at God when these things happened, ever. I just knew that there was a higher purpose. And, and, I, and I knew, like when my friend died, I really saw it as the caterpillar and the butterfly I mean that just came to me by myself you know that it things just change and we don't know is that helpful and so now I I have a relationship I'm not anti anything you know and I I talk to God and I turn to God and I'm reminded to turn to God I'm you know like someone said in the big book workshop you know sometimes we have to be turned like, if I can't turn, I can be turned. And I've had to be turned. So, turn, turn, turn. Yes? Thank you so much. How did you find the early years of parenting? The what? The early years of parenting when you first had your meeting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did I find... Well, just like from where you came from and how you could be the parent, not how you were raised. Yes, okay. How did I... How did I become the parent that I am, not as the parent that I was raised with? Good question. So I really, um, the love that I gave to my son was the love I never got. I did every, and in giving, I got. Uh, I did, you know, to my mother, cleaning the house was much more important. Having everything in order for dad was much more important than playing with me. And, you know, um, I was the opposite. <laughs> I could care less. You know, I used to have a nanny when I was still working and I had, you know, help in the house, which was awesome. But um, he just was my priority. And I just did every possible thing that not even, you know, 
because of that. Just because that's who I am. You know, that's what's inside of me. And I was able to, you know, express that. Where before it was really squelched. I, I was just squelched. So it was a great gift. Uh, is that good? Anybody else? Yes. Okay, what tools do I use to manage the period of time of discomfort when it stays for a, a while? Well, I have to use all the tools. You know, I have to sit on my hands and know that, you know, certainly food is not the problem or the solution. I totally get that, you know, I forget it. I mean, it's like sometimes I romance food and I look at the bag and I go, 16 servings and I'm like no way I mean I could never have this so I have to use the tools all of them you know and um, you know praying and meditating sitting on my hands I heard this you know fight for your right to feel uncomfortable and I love that because I feel uncomfortable plenty of times I have right now financial insecurity and I feel very uncomfortable and you know so I reach out to others I go to another program you know I go to meetings I you know all of that the tools are the answer and working the steps and staying close to the program yeah you're welcome how do I know the difference when I think about my will and God's will well, I have to check it out with somebody else. You know, I cannot just willy-nilly make this. When I do, I have to cop to it because I realize immediately, like, well, that wasn't right. You know, I need to check it out with somebody because, you know, my will is right here. You know, God wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. And if I'm acting out, or, you know, like in discomfort and, you know, if that's not God's will. That's my will fighting against what is, you know. Is that anybody else? Yeah. Think, how did I, if my, if I, did I start seeing food issues with my son as he was growing up and how did I handle those? So I was thinking about it this morning because, you know, my son, when he was little, I would be, wow, you know, he is not a compulsive overeater. He can just, well, now he is, you know, and it's painful. It's very painful. But if I keep my mouth shut, I just see him, I sometimes I see on Facebook, he's writing, you know, I lost 50 pounds and then I put it back and now I, you know, do you have some ideas and I'm trying, you know, who wants to play tennis? And he's working it out. You know, it's not for me to say anything. What, look, I hid the food the way my mother hid the food. I forgot to say how she hid the food, but she 
hid the food. I remember taking him to her house and I was showing him something out the window and we turned around and she had this big frame on her um, dresser of her wedding picture and behind the frame was all this baked goods. And I said, oh, honey, this is where grandma keeps the vacas, you know, (laughs) help yourself. And also she would just hide it. And then my father would come out of the bedroom and she'd say, what are you chewing? What are you eating? What do you think he's eating? The food that you hid in there. It was like the baked goods drawer. It was bad. It was really bad. So as my son was growing up, I was not like his dad. You know, he's involved in his life. We're both compulsive overeaters. And he would say, you know, that's not my food. Most of the time he was able to say, that's not my food. I couldn't bring things into my house and say, that's not my food. I just couldn't do it. So I did the hiding. (laughs) I once hid the cookies in my next door neighbor's house. I didn't hide them, but I said, could you hold these for me? And then my son said, could I have a cookie? And I said, Betty's on vacation. (laughs) And I was like, okay, that's not a really great idea. And then it became, let's go out and buy one of whatever it is that you want. It was challenging, very challenging for me. But, you know, it, it worked out, but except that he's a compulsive overeater. And, like, I'm sure I put this stuff on him he would never come to a meeting at this point every time I see a young person here I'm like oh but he grew up in this program and he's not ready if he ever will be I don't know anybody else Terrell do you have um, ever come to a victimization and if so how do you do I ever have feelings of victimization? And if so, how do I work the program on that? I, I felt like a victim, you know, most of my life. I kind of wanted you to see me as a victim. I would tell you, I started to say earlier, I would tell you this stuff, and I wanted you to go, that's horrible. <laughs> and, um, and you know, if it was horrible, it was it was horrible. But, you know, what am I doing today about it? And when I went to this one big book workshop where they totally went in depth with these sheets about your fourth step. And to me, it was absolutely brilliant because it was like, say you're standing on a stage. How do you want people to see you? You know, what is the perfect woman? What is the perfect man? All of this stuff. And I thought, I wanted people to see me as the perfect daughter. I'll tell you this story that I, my dad was having a big birthday, and we had a party just for the family. And there's a lot of kids, cousins. And I said, well, I'm going to go and buy a cake, ice cream cake. And my dad said, don't buy an ice cream cake. I don't, don't get it. And I said, you know, there's kids, blah, blah, blah. And I went and bought the cake, and I brought it in. And he went, stupid. And that was one of my stories. Like, what a horrible thing. And it was. But I realized in the fourth step, I didn't do what he asked me. It was his birthday, his party. He didn't want a cake. And I thought that I knew better. And that was a freaking miracle to realize that. So, you know, I get it. I have a part. I get to say what my part is. 
and by doing that, you know, I'm not the victim. And, you know, a lot of times it's like, why am I carrying this stuff around? You know, I need to have self-love today. And if it's not loving, it's not worth it to me. Life is getting shorter. <laughs> Does that answer your question, sort of, kind of? Anybody else? Yes, Corey. Um, can you talk about the average day of program in the life of our well, I I read meditation books. I pray throughout the day. I pray. Sometimes I don't have this formal thing in the morning. I do this, but throughout the day, I have connection with my higher power. I talk to my sponsees. I talk to my sponsor. I'm also working another program. Um, like, I don't make phone calls. Mostly I don't make phone calls, even though it's my intention to make phone calls. But um, I feel like I have a spiritual program uh, and a spiritual life. That's all the time we have. <laughs>